It's hard to tell what kind of a threat is posed by the Omicron variant. Japan, for example, is pretty much closing down their country, but there are reports that Omicron symptoms are unusually mild and brief. President Biden wanted to mandate vaccines for workers, but courts keep getting in his way. And in the background, inflation is rearing its ugly head, most dramatically eroding the economic status of lower income Americans. We'll talk about these matters and probably a lot more on today's episode of Independent Outlook. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. We are a stone's throw from San Francisco. And as always, I am joined by my two partners in crime, my two sophisticated interlocutors. First, David Thoreau, president and founder of the Independent Institute. Hello, David. Good to see you. Good to see you, Graham. Thank you. And also by my other colleague, Williamson Evers, Bill Evers, who is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Graham. Great to see you. So we come together every couple of weeks to sort of talk over what's happening and try and see what the threads of meaning are, what, what the real facts are behind some of the stories of the day. And uh, we're going to tackle that uh, today. But, you know, um, before we get started on talking about Omicron, for example, uh, before we talk about just exactly how it should be pronounced, for example, um, can we take a quick look backwards uh, to just last week, Thanksgiving celebration last week? Um, you know, um, it's being argued these days that Thanksgiving ain't all it's cracked up to be, as they might say these days. So, for example, you know, uh, there's this thing that's now called National Day of Mourning uh, that some people schedule on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, the United American Indians of New England, they sponsor National Day of Mourning last Thursday. And then there's the Alcatraz Red Power Movement, which, which sponsors Unthanksgiving Day. Uh, they've been doing that since 1969. <clears throat> and um, I noticed that if you go to the website for the Center on Racial Justice Education, you could have found last week um, this wonderful document called A Racial Justice Guide to Thanksgiving. So, so so Thanksgiving is being pretty much attacked uh, as not worth the time and effort or actually a symbol of something evil. Uh, and I, I think I was very reassured by seeing some interesting analysis by our research fellow, Phil Magnus, uh, who pointed out that actually uh, what's going on is itself a kind of distortion of historical facts. Uh, and that what we really need is not some kind of romanticized ideological narrative of one kind or the other, but to give thanks for what's really good and to be honest about what wasn't. So, for example, <clears throat> um, looking back at the first Thanksgiving, which I think was alleged to be in October of, of 1621, yes. um, it's pretty fascinating that what, what got the Thanksgiving uh, meal going was that the settlers from England, uh, the pilgrims who had been in, in Holland temporarily, uh, they couldn't figure out how to survive, and thankfully, uh, the Wampanoag people were willing to help them. And that first that first uh, harvest time, they got through it, and they had a few other bumps in the road later. But it's interesting that the Wampanoag people actually they they formed a treaty in 1621 with the Pilgrim settlers, um, and the treaty was with them, but also against others. Uh, it was against the Narragansett tribe, uh, led. Uh, 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 the, the Wampanoag people were led by Chief Osmaquin, uh, also known by as Massasoit. He made a treaty against the Narragansett. And David, you were telling me earlier why the Wampanoag needed to make a treaty against the Narragansett. The reason is because they're protecting themselves from being warred against and turned into slaves. All right. So slavery goes back very early. That's right. It's not just in Virginia does. in 1619. It's among the Indians of New England, right. possibly many decades and hundreds of years before. That's right. All pre-modern people either were enslaved and or were slave owners at some time. So people forget that there was actually that kind of political dimension. The Wampanoag were trying to keep themselves from being enslaved. And so they went into league with the Pilgrim settlers, um, an interesting part of the backstory, often forgotten. And they had peace with the Pilgrims and Puritans for 50 years. Yeah. Up until the King Philip's War. 
Yeah, quite a, amazing. Quite a, quite a lengthy period of peace and trade. And so, so the pilgrims, of course, gained knowledge of how to raise corn, how to fish locally, hunt, hunt locally, what herbs were and plants were edible and herbs were helpful in cooking. And they also, uh, since they had experience with smallpox in, in Europe and England, when smallpox hit the Indians, they helped uh, treat the Indians and care for the Indians. So it was uh, mutually beneficial. Another, another aspect of it is the, uh, the diversity of uh, economic and political systems within the different North American tribes. Very diverse. Some of them uh, had very sophisticated property rights systems. Some had very primitive communal systems. And the life, uh, uh, the livelihoods and the prosperity and the well-being of people largely depended on how secure these property rights were. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the lessons that the pilgrims had to learn the hard way. Uh, when they set up uh, the original settlement, they had a communal farming system and they almost were wiped out because of it. And it was only within, I think, three years when they finally realized that, and it was documented uh, in the records that they converted into a property right system. Also That's worth noting is the, the creation of the Mayflower Compact, which was inspired by the ideas that then led to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were influential throughout North America, so right. especially in the early colonies in Massachusetts. So the, the significance of Thanksgiving has multiple levels of importance. It's not just they were not starving and they were had a peace treaty, but they actually learned economic lessons and civic rule lessons that led to essentially the creation of the United States. It's fascinating that there were two more years of struggle after that first 1621 Thanksgiving before they figured this out. And yes. uh, Independent Institute, we published a really interesting piece last week on the very subject. I urge you to go to our website, independent.org, to take a look. It quotes William Bradford, Governor William Bradford, who said that the system of communal property ownership was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort, he says. <laughs> and so they switched out and gave people private plots of land and let them farm for themselves, and then they had real success. But the whole system depended upon a natural law perspective, that you respected the other person's property. You didn't take it. You basically then worked your land, your property, your, and then you traded and respected the, other, the rights of others. So it was a harmonious situation based on this rule of law. So it's interesting. The pilgrims did not have some sort of communistic ideology that no. led them to this. They were actually required by their contract with their mercantilist company yep. that was backing them to have this initial uh, communal or in commons own ownership like a field in common back in England. And so, it, of course, it didn't work out. Another interesting thing is if you have children or grandchildren, there's a very interesting children's book called The Sign of the Beaver about how Indians marked off regular hunting grounds to distinguish the area of one tribe from another. Of course, sometimes wars started because they didn't agree whose hunting ground was which. But anyway, it's a very interesting uh, children's book about Indians and proprietorship. Well, not to, not to go on too long on the subject, but you know, I think the, what I'd like to say in summary is that certainly uh, there have been periods in our history where the accounts of Thanksgiving were kind of romanticized and right. idealized and whitewashed the losses suffered by Native peoples. But then I would say that the current leftist uh, accounts that are really viciously distorting, they're even mo more distorted uh, than those. And why not try and just be straightforward and honest. Uh, you mentioned to me, for example, Bill, you were somewhere recently where you saw some statues to American history right. taking a better approach. Right. So I happened to be for Thanksgiving in Franklin, Tennessee, which is just south of Nashville. And uh, it was the site of a famous battle, the Battle of Franklin. Uh, during the Civil War, Southern troops came north and tried to recapture Nashville from the Yankees from the north from the Union, from the United States. So uh, they have statues, Confederate statues there. It's Tennessee. 
And so some people wanted to pull them down. And so what they did instead is they put up a colored trooper uh, statue. It's, very, it's an excellent statue, representational art. It shows a Southern uh, black, so a black soldier from the Civil War. It explains about black troops during the Civil War at the base. I also have a, um, in the town square, they have a thing about a race riot that happened uh, later on after the Civil War in the town. They explain what happened, who the different sides were, what the issues are. So it's a very hist historically thorough, full story. So rather than tear down the past, it's recounting the past and Let's symbolically add rather illustrating. Than subtract. Exactly. Yeah, just I thought add it was really statues. excellent. And it's a good statue. Yeah, good to hear. They call, they hear. call the Confederate statue there Chip because the guy's hat was chipped oh. from the, the beginning when they first put it up. Anyway, just another tidbit. One of the other uh, uh, points to make here is that the various leftist groups that are critiquing the first Thanksgiving and the pilgrims are advocating the very economic system right. that creates poverty, creates high child mortality, and so forth. So those Indian tribes that embraced communalism and more were the ones that suffered. So the the advocates, uh, the leftist advocates are, who are pushing communalism or or worse, full collectivism, are actually doing a great service to their own people yes, and to people, service, real, yeah. people everywhere. Absolutely. Okay, so <clears throat> thanks, friends, for bearing with us for that little look backwards. I just thought it was worth remembering. Um, and uh, another thing worth remembering, I think today is the day, memory of the day, when Rosa Parks uh, made her brave entry to the bus and sat in the front. Uh, quick salute to Rosa Parks for standing up for individual liberty and equality. And, and the lesson there is the same story, basically, that Rosa Parks was under a legal restriction that forced her to sit in the back of the bus it was not that the bus company on its own had the restriction. The bus company had to, had to conform to it. Maybe the bus company supported it. But the point is that without the restriction, the Jim Crow laws could not exist and could not segregate people. Right. So Jennifer Robach Morse has done some research on this. And if you want to find it, you need to find it under her maiden name, Jennifer Robach. And so she wrote about streetcars in the South and the fact that the companies, when they were private companies, wanted to you know, offer rides on a first come, first serve basis to everybody. And it was the uh, basically the whites that wanted to have a cartelized labor market and carry that cartel into all everyday life that forced the streetcar companies to do that. Right. So, so one of the lessons. Yeah. Go ahead. Reinforcing then. David's point. So one of the one of the overall lessons, uh, which is yet to be learned by many people, is that Jim Crow existed and segregation could not have existed without Jim Crow. So if you want to have racial harmony and integration, you eliminate racially based law. And many people in the civil rights establishment believe the opposite. And that's part of what led to the, cur the current uh, confusion and problems with critical race theory, which advocates essentially segregation. Right, categorizing by race, by government right. power. Exactly. So uh, going back, I think you were trying to get to Omicron. Well, <laughs> and, yeah, now that's and, the and thing. It's funny, it's funny <laughs> that they, they couldn't use chi, the next Greek letter, Yes. Because chi is too similar when it's, it can be written out C-H-I or it can be written out X-I. Yes. Well, X-I is also a way to transliterate the leader of China, the communist leader of China. President yes. So the World Health Organization <laughs> didn't want to name, uh, this is uh, the most sensitive ruler in the world about any perceived slight. So they were certainly not going to name a variant after something that looked like his name. That's right. They also, um, originally they were going to call this variant new NU, but they decided not to because a lot of people think it's N-E-W, i.e. new. Right. So they skipped N-U and then they skipped Kai. G, right. G, mm -hmm. right. And uh, uh, some people have said it's uh, one of the interesting thing about um, the uh, use of Omicron is as an anagram, if you reorgan, 
rearrange the letters, it spells moronic. <laughs> well, well, that I may thought, be I thought maybe President Trump would start calling it variant she, but I yeah. guess not going to do that. Maybe not. He, he missed he he missed that cue. He uh, missed so it. <laughs> so. But but the 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 interesting thing about the Omicron variant uh, that that's its naming saga, but. Everybody's certainly talking about it now. Everyone's having trouble pronouncing it. Uh, President Biden said a couple of times recently at a oh. press conference, Omicron, yeah, which right. is not right. Some yeah. people are saying Omicron, but since it's a Greek transliteration, I think it's right. supposed to be Omicron. I think you're Omicron. right, too. Yes. And it's amazing. None of these people had, were on college campuses with fraternities, and none of them ever had to right. learn the Greek alphabet or yep. you know, something like that. It's kind yep. of... So the South Africans discovered this. They were the first yes. ones to notice this new variant. And they um, reported it right away, unlike some other countries who- uh, They were very conscientious compared to other countries, especially uh, China, China, to be, to be well, clear. Well, it was the chairman of the South African Medical Society that, yeah. that went public about it. And she uh, uh, emphasized over and over again that it is, quote unquote, extremely mild. Right. And, and Dr. A Angelique- a short duration. And short Dr. duration. An right. Angelique Cotese, Cotese, yes. she said very, very mild symptoms, and she saw people getting over it in two or three days. Which so, is in keeping with the uh, epidemiologist's understanding of variants. Right. Virus variants sequentially get milder and milder. Uh, it's also interesting that it's occurring in Africa, uh, in the, the southernmost part of Africa and the northernmost part of Africa. Um, you have pretty much the same uh, rate of infections and deaths as in other countries. But in the bulk of Africa, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, rate of infections and deaths is far, far smaller than other countries yeah, in the it's world. It's a big they're medical been, puzzle. It's a big medical been, puzzle. They don't know if could be malaria climate. could be it or that they're, they're sick with other similar things all the time. And so they're used to just not really sure why this is. It's a big... And of course, it could just be that there's a lot of it out there, but it's not detected. But people don't really think that. They think there is something, might be a genetic thing, and we don't really know. Uh, but it certainly could be that similar diseases have immunized them through natural immunity to it. Right. Well, in any event, the New York Times studies. There have been a number of peer-reviewed studies now, Bill, that uh, basically show that the 19 countries in that region have uh, not only a far lower infection and death right. rates, um, but that the presence of mass just uh, use of ivermectin um, correlates with that. And those countries that don't have mass use uh, have far higher infection rates. The same thing happened in India. Uh, one of the states um, shifted to ivermectin when they couldn't get the vaccines and they had very high infection rates and death rates, and that all plummeted dramatically. But that narrative doesn't comport with um, the sort of public health establishment view, especially those that are supporting the vaccines um, in from big pharma and so forth. So, well, I'm not I'm not a medical doctor, and uh, I've had my vaccines and my booster, and I'm because I'm over 65 and I have. Uh, Collect, you know, I have additional medical weaknesses, so that's how I've chosen. And I think right. uh, that's my counsel to people in my same condition. Right. The problem with the CDC and, and the WHO and others, uh, especially in the United States, is the view that a one-size-fits-all approach, one-size-fits-all vaccine uh, should be used throughout the populace. And that is a grave mistake. There are groups, uh, including the young uh, children, as well as people really under 60, who are low risk from having serious problems and that therapeutics can be used more effectively. But even, even aside from the therapeutics issue, having a one-size-fits-all approach in any field of medicine is always a mistake. The great breakthroughs in medicine in the last 50 years has been to realize that people have individualized health histories and needs. And since this uh, uh, 
mRNA vac vaccine is new and not tested like we know with other medications, uh, the problems with heart issues and many others seem to be uh, a uh, uh, not uh, non-trivial. So if you look at a country like the UK, recent studies have shown that the number of people who are dying from the vaccine now is higher than the people who had who died from COVID. So obviously the 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 uh, the variation uh, across countries. Who did that study, David? It was I'd have to look it up, but it was a, it was a prominent study. So anyway, the point is that uh, the one size fits all approach is dangerous. There's also different epidemiologists who believe that the history of of vaccines um, are such that if you have a one size fits all approach to a population, you actually uh, sort of encourage variants that can be more dangerous as opposed to only targeting the people who are most at risk. So that in the in the latter case, the incidence of mutations dies out as far as the severity. But if you vaccinate everyone, the ability to create herd immunity for that uh, that process reverses. So I think one thing that's interesting to observe is the widespread, even into the, at least nominally, into the Biden administration, is opposition to lockdowns. At one point early on, Fauci, Dr. Fauci said that, well, we might have to look at that. We don't want to take that off the table. But immediately the Biden administration said, no, we're not looking at lockdowns. So. Although we're getting uh, potential vaccine mandate things and we're getting potential face mask things, the lockdown thing has really been insufferable for the population and the pol yes. politicians realize that. And that's part of this one size fits all approach that those that are more at risk are treated the same way as people who have low risk, including those that have had COVID and have acquired natural immunity. So speaking of the Biden administration and all the things, they really seem to have a serious problem with inflation. The head of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, now says, well, it's not temporary anymore. Uh, he's taking that out of the vocabulary. And all sorts of commentators are saying that uh, regulation, problems with the supply side and regulation of the supply side regulations of trucking, regulations of uh, cargo preference, Jones Act, uh, lack of automation, labor union problems in the ports, all these things, they, they are the drivers of the supply problem and the broad money increase with quantitative easing, with all the different awash and money things that were done during COVID, not to speak of even in earlier administrations are now hitting us. Right. And, and the solution uh, that is being pushed by the Democrats is to ramp up the spending and debt even further. So it's uh, like, and so, regulations and they want, and they want more regulations. That's I right. mean, right. Yeah. Right now, the ports in California are going into labor negotiations. You don't see the Democratic politicians say, OK, let's step back and collective bargaining from all these things that inhibit modernization of the ports. No, they're just saying, oh, do God bless you, labor unions, put your uh, you know, constraints on this even further if you, if you so desire. And predictably, the, the latest thing is that Biden and others are blaming uh, businesses for inflation, for raising prices because they're so greedy. Suddenly, suddenly greed reappears how about Elizabeth Warren blaming the chickens and the poultry industry? Yeah, that was that's right. <laughs> well, you, know, you there, must be there joking. Are some that are blaming climate change for it too. But I think that the, the scapegoating um, has already begun. I call uh, it scape chickening. Yeah, scape, scape chickening. <laughs> so people who most economists will admit that, you know, whether they're Keynesians or monetarists or Austrians, or whatever, they, they will agree that inflation is a process of redistributing wealth. Uh, the low, uh, lower income people, middle class people, uh, those on fixed incomes and so forth are hurt the most. 
and those that gain the the uh, the inflation system uh, through investments and so forth benefit. And of course, those that are wealthy, wealthier, um, feel the inflation pressures the least. So uh, it, it, it's a it's uh, a horrible process. And some commentators have tried to excuse this to say that oh, that's because they're you know essentially flyover country people who don't understand the importance of what we're doing. Uh, or they're environmentalists who believe you have to have higher fuel costs to shift to renewables right. and what, what have you. This is actually something that deserves a little expansion. Yeah. So the the Biden administration has been caught in a very weird jujitsu of its own making with regard to fuel prices, with regard to gasoline and gas price, you know, natural gas prices and everything. So on the one hand, they want to get the economy coercively off of fossil fuels. Uh, and so one way obviously to do this is to raise the costs. And so in some sense, they're cheering for this. On the other hand, politically, they know that the population is feeling the pinch of all these expenses and it's winter time and you know, people need heating oils and things like that. And uh, so, so they have a discontented population that doesn't like uh, gas prices that are notably higher. Uh, and of course, we in California, I mean, I was just in Tennessee and it's like a dollar less. And uh, so, you know, they're, they're caught in a trap partially of their own devising. So instead of uh, opening up the spigots to give us further supply, uh, opening pipelines, allowing for uh, drilling in places that uh, look look like they have good potential that are on federal land or whatever it is, they're trying to block that and say, and then to, to not have anything going on domestic territory, they're trying to beg the international oil cartel, OPEC, uh, to loosen its valves. So rather than allowing for increased <clears throat> supply from American production yeah. sources, they're restricting right. that. <clears throat> but President Biden chose what he thought might have been a middle way. So instead of allowing production to increase, yeah. he decided on just before Thanksgiving to announce this big release from the National Strategic He Petroleum did that, Reserve. which is also supposed to save for wartime or some exactly. crises. It's not supposed to be an inflation tool. So it makes us even more vulnerable to international pressures while restricting our own supply and scarcely had any effect on prices. Right. I was it's looking at tiny. this article today. Oh, maybe a few pennies. Right. Yeah, a few pennies. That's right. Yeah. And if it's, it dissipates within uh, two or three days. So, so you know, another the voters another. are going to hold them responsible eventually for this. <clears throat> and, you know, sorry, I just one other thought, uh, Bill. Yeah. <clears throat> our, our own research fellow, Judy Shelton, <clears throat> has made All a right. really interesting argument about this, pointing out that inflation, which is induced by these governmental <clears throat> constrictions uh, and by the debt financing and so forth, inflation is the worst possible regressive tax. Yes. And so progressives position themselves as champions of, you know, the poor and the working people, and they're in favor of, of, of progressive, not regressive taxes. But inflation is an even more powerful regressive tax than any other kind of regressive tax, because it eats away at the actual value of the paycheck that working people work so hard to earn. And so inflation- so Judy has had fabulous hmm. placement of her articles lately in the Wall Street Journal. And the politicians and bureaucrats in the Democratic Party and on the left have been making fools out of themselves. So there's a Marie Antoinette moment for Pete Buttigieg when he said, let them all buy electric cars. Yes. Of course, are $55,000 a piece oh, and man. cost More. over $600 a year. Reminds me of Belgian yes. endive days. All right. And then, <laughs> then there was uh, the uh, suggestion that uh, this is just uh, this is just this is this is from Jansaki. Uh, she said that uh, it's just getting your uh, power exercise bicycle a few days late. Yes. And then another spokesperson oh, for the Democratic who's buying, Party said, "Who's buying this is just exercise a problem. cycles? This is just a problem for uh, upper class." When everybody knows, as the three of us have just been saying. 
that the lower classes are the ones that suffer the most, the ones that are on fixed income, right. the proverbial with, with, widows and orphans who are the, yes. the biggest victims of inflation. So how do, how do progressives get away with being so vehemently against regressive taxation and being so vehemently in favor of policies that, that push inflation, that is the worst regress. How, how do they get away with that politically? I don't get it. They, they basically get away with it because the public is not very well educated in economics. Yes, that's right. And also because of the, I mean, the irony is that progressives were rebelling against um, different measures. I, we talked about Jim Crow, for example. Uh, which were, you know, it's a bad policy, obviously. There are many other policies that have been implemented on subsidizing industries and regulating, creating cartels and so forth. And to progressive credit, they were usually against such measures, but they believed in the same means to achieve their own ends. And so they would essentially implement policies that would create cartels or apologize for cartels. I'm going to have to gently disagree with you. I would say that the uh, when one reads Railroads and Regulation yes. by Gabriel Kolko and The Triumph of Conservatism by the same author, yeah. he shows that a lot of progressive lawmakers of the progressive era embraced cartelization of the economy yes. as a way of expert management, as a way of technocratic rule, and as also a way to you know, kind of benefit a regularized state capitalism of some sort, rather than a laissez-faire uh, thing that they found was, you know, chaotic and not in control of them. So uh, I'm going to... Uh, Bill, that's exactly what I'm, I'm saying. I'm sure we're really agreeing with each other. <laughs> in other words, uh, a progressive would be uh, likely to be against uh, corporate welfare and other measures that is looked at as... Uh, uh, against equity, against equality, and so on and so forth, uh, rewarding those at the top. And so there is a history of their being critical of such policies, but then they would embrace those very same policies to advance their own agenda, which is exactly what you're talking about. I'm going to be even more cynical and say there were kind of two branches. There was the the equity talk branch that was put up front as a kind of smokescreen and the actual policy making was favorite making special interest subsidies uh, and so forth and so the actual distribution of income things while there was some handing around to different people it didn't really change the quartile or anything like that and meanwhile, the special interests that were politically connected ended up walking off with the loot. Right. And so basically what progressives have done is that instead of embracing the classical liberal critique of right. centralizing government power, they embrace the ancien regime's view of centralizing power. With modernized lingo. With modernized yeah, right. lingo, that in the name of the people, we're going to centralize power and impose our rules on you. I mean, so it used the to be in the name of, of the king, but now... <laughs> Right. So and the history of this is that it's a an apologia for centralized power and interest groups. And so that's it's not surprising that so many companies, uh, the leadership, uh, whether it's big tech or big pharma or whatever, embrace progressive views. All right. So at one time it was under the famous technocratic minister in France, Colbert, and he was trying to cartelize the economy. And now it's under some sort of MIT PhD economist who's trying to do the same thing for the politicians and bureaucrats of today. Yep, that's right. So why don't we uh, turn the page to another topic, although they're all related to one another. Did you see uh, at the announcement just about an hour and a half or two hours ago that Stacey Abrams has announced she's going to run again for governor of Georgia? Mm -hmm. And, and so this, of course, portends a return to uh, the really fiery uh, race-based rhetoric that she used in her campaign right. the first time. She I mean, she almost mm -hmm. won, but then she didn't. Um, so we're coming back to, um, with Stacey Abrams, she's probably going to be putting a spotlight on some of these uh, right. law cases, like the Rittenhouse case, the Arbery case, and so forth. Uh, Waukesha case with Rittenhouse. I imagine we're going to be hearing more rather than less of that as she ramps up her campaign. Um, yes. What do you think about that, Bill? 
I think it's fascinating. You know, she's always said that she actually won the last governor's race in Georgia. Right. Mm-hmm. So always she said it was stolen say, from her and rigged. Right. So I'm, you know, despite various problems around the country, uh, many, many in the news media, many pundits say, well, how dare you raise anything like this? But McAuliffe, who just lost as governor of Virginia, for decades, even today, claimed that, uh, you know, Republicans didn't win in a national election, Republicans didn't win in the Georgia Stacey Abrams election and so forth. So it's kind of a classic thing for some politicians to talk this way. And then it's an evidentiary question whether there's a problem. Now, as to all these cases, it's very interesting how the Waukesha case in which a man who had a sidebar interest as a rapper and had all sorts of anti-white, I think racially inflammatory rhetorics in his, sorry, lyrics in his uh, rap uh, routines uh, and who had just driven over the father, uh, the mother of his child Mm, and, uh, you know, and somehow was out on a thousand dollars bail and we can say a little bit about this bail reform stuff, uh, was out there careening through the streets, running down, dancing grannies and ch- children and stuff like this in Waukesha. Uh, five and, or and six then, have and died. And a Democratic official cl- claimed, oh, this is payback for the mm-hmm. righteous payback for the Rittenhouse verdict. Oh, man. How wow. does that figure? I mean... So I, I think, uh, you know, one thing about bail is it's a kind of bond that you're going to show up. So they, mm-hmm. they're reducing it. So they're freeing people. But you should not reduce genuinely dangerous people. In every case, we have a problem right now because we don't have enough people in our judicial system for a speedy trial. You're entitled to a right. speedy trial. The public is entitled to have truly dangerous people, people with a rhetoric of violence, held and you know not be out on the streets they shouldn't be going out on one thousand dollars bail and uh you know this is a complicated question about bail and penal things for classical liberals but the essence of it is the public should be protected people who are accused should have a fair and speedy trial and uh, we shouldn't be turning out a guy who just ran over his girlfriend uh, and have him run down all these other people. It was, and, and the media, I mean, <laughs> CNN said a car ran down. No, no, some individual was driving the car. They don't want to even mention as a sidebar the color of the individual who did this and the color of the victims because they're hopped up about a racial narrative instead of just talking about reality. Right. And so there's been quite an, an evasion to address the issue based on the facts, just like the Rittenhouse case, because one, they thought fit their narrative and they literally made claims in the media that it was the in the Rittenhouse incident that uh, Rittenhouse uh, was a white supremacist who came to the scene basically to murder blacks. Uh, he brought his gun to do that. Uh, he shot blacks, killed blacks, and, and right. so on. All of the fault. All of right. Fault. So all the evidence in both of these cases uh, go against the this this progressive narrative, and the media is treating uh, the you know the legacy media has been treating the two cases almost exactly opposite. I don't know what the three of us think about the Arbery case, but. It seems to me that the jury found in accordance with Georgia law mm-hmm. and, you know, the case was well presented and the, the people who are the perpetrators made a video, but they did. They yeah. did. So that they was sort of, nice. you know, put themselves in jail. It's kind of disgusting that, that they were reveling in their own wrongdoing by well, recording it. I, it does bring up another interesting case, another interesting issue, which is it's always... You know, I don't have a settled view on it, but, you know, the classic thing is they rob, people rob a bank and somebody gets shot and maybe killed in it. Does the driver who wasn't in the bank, who didn't pull the trigger, who probably didn't want anybody to pull the trigger, 
is he liable for murder in the you know first degree or just as assisting a bank robber or is he something else you know He's a lesser thing right. so in the case of this murder there's a, a kind of an instance of this uh, where we're not sure going into whether they set out to murder this guy in some sense whether all three of them set out and so forth. So this is an occasion. I don't. If you, I don't know if we can settle this or have anything brilliant to say on it, but it is raised by this. Well, what seemed to become clearer during the trial is that while they may or may not have set out in advance with the right. conscious intent of killing him, they certainly set out to go after him and to yeah, pursue yeah, him. They did. In they a did. very right. unjustifiable and disturbing right. way. Which yeah. would almost inevitably. I think we can have more confidence in the the outcome of that trial. I think so too. I'm not dissatisfied with the case, but I'm right. just I'm just raising a kind of more general question that's also yes. uh, bound up with all these criminal justice issues that are before us these days. Right, and so if if you switch to San Francisco, which has this okay. over Thanksgiving and and all these different Walnut uh, Creek, right. Right, Walnut Creek, and also in Costa Mesa, and many other places. I'm but afraid especially to go in San into Francisco. They now. were shaking down many of the stores in Union Square, uh, and uh, it's no coincidence that the district attorney is uh, an apologist, essentially, for uh, not prosecuting people who are shoplifting. But I thought um, now he's gonna. Well, there's a recall election for him, uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, the the mayor has come up forcefully against everything. But right. we also have the problem of the current. The mayor is more of a centrist Democrat, right? Exactly. But, but the, we Bodine, also have Bodine comes from a famous radical family, weatherman family. So That's right. His mother was Kathy Bodine, and his grandfather was Leonard Bodine, yeah. a famous left wing lawyer. And he was raised by uh, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn. Fascinating upbringing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's other of them around the country without such illustrious heritage. And uh, there's a lot of pushback. And I read a fascinating article in uh, the National Review about how much of this is organized crime. Yes. So it's not just sort of snatch and grab no, individual not. gratification. There's huge, I mean, multi, multi-million dollar fencing operations involved in international black yeah. market trade, uh, black market in the most evil sense of black market. Right. And so, so this some is, people- This is a big business, a big piratical business. Yeah. This is clearly organized crime. Yeah. And some have, have um, suggested that since there weren't the kind of riots after the George Floyd uh, death killing- uh, after the Rittenhouse court decision. Uh, and a lot of the looting in the cities around the country was also uh, done by organized crime because they had the cover to get away with things. Right. Uh, the view is that's being suggested is that since the riots didn't occur, they had already essentially uh, hired people. They were ready for the riots. They didn't occur. So they just said, let's do it anyway. Yeah. Well, we don't really have the evidence, but I don't think that's a crazy idea at all. It's not and a crazy. It's a funny know, it's thing that they're calling this right. orcs, organized retail crime. Oh, that's right. It's an organized and, and it, it looks like there may be something to that. It's also important to know that in, in California with Proposition 47, I believe, that essentially uh, reduced shoplifting to a misdemeanor. Right. Um, and so uh, people will uh, loot and uh, break into stores and so on and so forth without any consequence. And then some of the media will, will defend this as, as reparations for racial uh, injustice and so forth. So it, it's a confusion. For, uh, hopefully the mayor of San Francisco will implement some policies which, which are a little more effective. But I think this Prop 47, which was uh, sold to the California populace as being a safety and anti-crime measure actually has done the opposite. Right. So I do want to give a negative thought on the mayor of San Francisco. So uh, in the midst of this, the argument that the mayor brought forth was, well, we shouldn't have this looting because it diminishes the welfare state. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so a normal person who views this looting thinks, you know, this is stealing. This is against 
fundamental principles, natural law, Ten Commandments, what, whatever basis you have for this elemental idea of justice, she you shouldn't take what belongs to other people. He doesn't want to argue it. The mayor doesn't want, she doesn't want to argue it that way. The mayor yes. wants to say, look, if we have a bad business climate, we can't reap as much taxes as we want. And if we can't reap as many taxes as we want, we can't fund the welfare state. So stop looting or you won't get as many benefits as you Well, want. there's some truth to that. I know. I'm not saying that the <laughs> utilitarian analysis is always wrong or something. I'm just saying it's kind of bizarre to have a welfare state argument against looting. Well, there's some people who've long argued that the welfare state is essential to have a civil society. And... Uh, I think the argument falls apart when you look at the actual historical evidence, but that is a common view. There's also some people who would call a welfare state a form of looting, but we're not yes. going to get into that view here. <laughs> right. Yes. Charming as it is. <laughs> if I could get back to Stacey Abrams for a moment. Certainly. Um, uh, when uh, the governor there and Abrams and others came up with reforms that they agreed to, which essentially made uh, uh, ballot harvesting legal, uh, mail-in ballots over a long period of time legal, and so on and so forth, uh, not being able to uh, uh, determine the legality of ballots with signature requirements and so forth, uh, opened up the opportunity, right, opened up the opportunity for all sorts of fraud. Um, since that time, uh, there has been really an uproar in Georgia uh, calling for a full forensic audit. People like Kemp have resisted it. Uh, so I think that the, the, and I think that Abrams, in the minds of a lot of people, um, is questionable in, in what actually did happen in 2020, um, as well as her own uh, racialist views. Uh, so I think it's going to be a different situation in this upcoming election, uh, including the fact that uh, those that are, are, are trying to seek the Republican nomination um, are uh, people who uh, believe Kemp has been a big problem. So it's, it's going to be an interesting dynamic to see play out, to say the least. Well, I think ballot integrity could have been better in Georgia. I don't, I don't know if that would have changed the state results. I do think another fascinating candidate is Dr. Oz in I'll Pennsylvania. Say. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had a very uh, anti-big government, small, you know, small government, individual rights, constitution, uh, economic prosperity uh, platform. As far as I saw him enunciating on television, he was on the Hannity show, uh, interviewed and asked direct questions about what his views were. And he seemed you know, pretty much in the, broadly speaking, Goldwater, Reagan, Trump tradition, certainly all the things that are common to those three. But he has a way higher approval rating he than has Goldwater a tremendous <laughs> name identification. Unbelievable. Now, I'm not saying yeah. you should rely on every medical piece of advice he gives you, but... Yes. I am saying. Yeah, but he was like on a Oprah. Very attractive candidate. He was on Oprah, Bill. So if a doctor was on Oprah, I mean, got to be a good doctor, right? All right, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is amazing. I mean, the Democrats in Pennsylvania must be very alarmed because he represents policy-wise everything that they oppose, and yet people don't see him as some kind of weird right winger because yeah. he isn't a weird right winger. No, he's That's a right. pretty, pretty normal. He seems like a very humane guy, yeah. right? And I think that mm -hmm. that one, of course, the the news media, the hostile news media, will immediately start <laughs> saying he's some sort of rebarbative creature. <laughs> anyway, but this is a very significant political development because yeah. this was the the seat that the Democrats, in my view, had the biggest chance of picking up in the Senate. Yeah, uh, with the retirement of Pat Toomey. Yeah. And now if, if Mehmet Oz is going to be the Republican candidate, he, he will tower over not only other Republicans, but also over almost it's any other Democrat. It's very hard to conceive of a Democrat that could beat him. Very hard. Unless, yeah. unless he makes some mistake in the campaign that, that makes him. But I, here's a man who's been on television for a zillion years. So he's very used to the milieu of, of being in public and answering questions. It's not, you know, and he's not somebody... 
he doesn't so so Larry Elder was in a sense because he was a talk show host and because he reveled in disputing difficult issues. He was on the record on many difficult issues and he said clever, intelligent, often quite correct things on difficult issues, but that meant that he had, you know, a record that could be used against him. Whereas Oz can say politically, he's essentially a blank slate. He can say it or put it or formulate it how he likes, and yet he still has the tremendous reservoir of public friendliness. Goodwill, that's right. Yeah, exactly. But I also think that what we're seeing, and this goes back to my point about uh, the Georgia election, gubernatorial election, is that the landscape, the political landscape is shifting, where among different ethnic groups, Hispanics, Blacks, and others, uh, where the elite is no longer trusted uh, and relied upon. Uh, and so the, uh, the midterm elections uh, will, in my opinion, be a continuation of what happened uh, just a month ago uh, in Virginia and Texas and other places. So I think the Democrats are petrified that they've got to either backtrack uh, from what they've been pushing or they're going to be really uh, it's going to be a huge wave that's going to wash so over. So you don't think mm -hmm. Beto O'Rourke is going to seize Texas, huh? <laughs> it's really kind of embarrassing he's, that he'd be that naive. I know. And well, so clearly people who have big money have been pushing him to do it. These southern parts of Texas, uh, the Latinos there are turning increasingly Republican. In the last yep. few weeks, there's a huge, long article in the New York Times about the shift toward Republicans and conservatism among yep. Latinos, among Hispanics, uh, young. I mean, just it's it, they made it sound. It's not the only one single article, but the New York Times is sort of sounding as if they're resigned to uh, Latinos turning Republican and that there's yep. nothing the Democrats can do about it. I yeah, mean, it's, it's, it's almost a fatalistic Yes, and I think we're also seeing that in California and other places. It's no longer just Cuban Americans. Right. It, it's it's Hispanics across the board. And well, you know, I'm I ready think... to bring the Puerto Ricans aboard. I'm not sure that's happened yet. Well, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, the um, I think it'll be in retrospect. I predict it will have proven to be decisive when uh, Matthew McConaughey decided not to run for Texas governor yes. as a Democrat. And Mehmet Oz decided to run for senator from Pennsylvania as a Republican. Those mm -hmm. two things really will amplify yes. um, what is already a trend in the other other political direction in this next year's election, I predict. Yes. So what do you guys think about the Smollett lynching hoax trial? Mm -hmm. Looks like kind of a circus to me. I mean, yeah. he seems so uh, implausible, his claims. Well, his, he's claiming that it happened the way he told it. And I mean, the funny thing is that Dave Chappelle had the most brilliant satirical comment on it. You know, he's saying, oh, and the, the white supremacist MAGA hat wearing people turned out to be, you know, Nigerians. What hysterical yes. uh, right. twist to it. And yes. of course, they now have video of them rehearsing it on the site the day no. before. Yes. Really? Yes. Today's huh. New York Post has that. So uh, it's just phenomenal. First of all, all the liberal pundits and politicians who were, you know, saying, oh, Jesse Smollett, what a terrible, terrible thing happened to him with, you know. Right. They have even more egg on their face. They now, some, a few of them acknowledge, I, I give Kamala Harris credit that she said, you know, you harmed a lot of people if they do if something really bad does happen to them yeah. crying wolf like this exactly it much harder for a genuine case of uh a, a racial crime being brought because That's, who who can believe with all these hoaxes whether yeah. it's tawana brawley or uh, others it means that a, a, a genuine crime is less believable that's yeah. right but it also brings us back to the point that the purpose of trials and the purpose of criminal investigation is to make evident the truth, to get at the truth. And yes. it looks like the police have done their job here. And it turns out that in the, the Rittenhouse incident, there are 
there's quite a bit of video footage of blacks uh, with guns defending property and other people from the rioters, quite Good. extensive. And all of that was ignored and covered up in the trial. Didn't fit wow. the narrative. It didn't fit the yeah. narrative. That's right. Yeah, so man. it wasn't as if Kyle Rittenhouse was the lone wolf in the situation. Yeah. There were a lot of people who were doing exactly what he was trying to do. In, in our own city of Oakland, uh, Korean Americans are known to protect private property, commercial yes. property in times of unrest. So let's right. give all people credit. Exactly. We're going to wind down in a couple minutes here, but I just want to uh, kind of end with one set of thoughts and let you guys react to this a little bit. But we were uh, talking almost jokingly or uh, at least wryly earlier about how the public health authorities decided to name the Omicron variant the way they did, skipping over the Greek letter that would have looked like Xi, lest they offend President Xi and Chinese Communist Party power and so forth. So this kind of thing is happening all over the place. Um, I read how on November 16th, it was reported that uh, the Biden White House was planning to announce that the U.S. Uh, officials and President Biden would uh, uh, not attend the Beijing Winter Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. And so then and that's I thought, OK, that sounds like, you know, some some bravery there because standing up against obviously some pressure. But then two days later, uh, President Biden announced that, well, it's just something we're considering. So he kind of yes. walked it back yeah. and, and then he hemmed and hawed for another week or so. And then in the meanwhile, the Chinese government announced that they're not inviting any world leaders to attend. Mm -hmm. uh. <laughs> and so so now uh, even if President Biden announces a diplomatic boycott, um, he'll only be bo boycotting an event that he was not invited to attend. This exactly. was pointed out in the National Review uh, today, which is pretty striking. And then, you right. know, there's these other cases, like, for example, uh, today, the world, the Women's Tennis Association has suspended all tournaments in China because of the case of Peng Shuai, yeah. uh, who is the famous woman tennis player from China, who went public with her accusation of sexual assault against a retired vice premier, Zhang Gaoli, uh, right. and then suddenly disappeared. Yeah. Uh, and the, the World Women's Tennis Association he, he, seems he to have backbone. He wasn't on Chairman Xi's list of people to be purged for corruption. Apparently so not. One of, the, no. one of the great strategies for in communist parties, Stalin used this, by the way, to get at his critics and foes, is to set up an anti-corruption purge or a secretariat for internal party integrity or something. And then you move mm -hmm. out, demote, send it to gulag, whatever it is, your people that, you're, that aren't your friends. So uh, apparently this uh, accused deputy prime minister uh, wasn't on G's list to be purged and to have him accused of uh, sexual assault didn't fit the program. So they right, decided to silence her there. Yeah, so uh, she's speaking of speak. She's disappeared, and they there's been a video surfaced of her, which yeah. allegedly shows her okay, uh, but yes. it's very it's, unclear. And yeah, I don't understand like, why the it's public like health happy, happy happy videos of Korean War PO, PO precisely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't, think I don't, speaking of sexual assault, it looks like Chris Cuomo has kind of gotten his just reward here. Oh man, yes. yeah, Fredo. Yeah. <laughs> Man, oh man. Well, they, they've they've uh, he's it's uh, it's a undetermined absence, right? Uh, unlimited absence, uh, and uh, but what it was what was found about his trying to uh, go after the women who were making accusations against his brother, right? Um, and using his position, access to information, right, is pretty is pretty pathetic. Yeah, I'm sure it irritates some of the some of his colleagues and some of the corporate executives yep. in his company, they don't really like people doing that. And of course, he also helped cover up uh, his brother's decrees that sent infected people back into nursing houses. Yes. He, he certainly doesn't want, we don't want to downplay that in pointing out no. the Me Too problems that he had. That's right. Definitely. Well, also, I think that, I mean, he he claims that he is this independent, objective journalist. Uh, I mean, at Fox, um, the evening shows are opinion shows uh, and the news shows are earlier. But at CNN, they claim that the evening shows are news and journalism. And Fredo uh, is one of those people who makes that claim. So I think it's even even worse 
uh, as being a hypocrite. I hope all our viewers uh, got those Godfather references. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so wow, there's always a lot to talk about. I might not have like 10 more things I'd love to ask you guys, <laughs> but out of courtesy to our uh, friends and participants far and near, we're going to have to draw it to a close. I'm going to give you each chance for your last shot in a moment, but let me just point out that uh, we do really make a point here at the Independent Institute of assembling um, uh, analysis and research um, and some opinions, but founded on some research that can make sense of a lot of these complicated issues of the day. And I invite our friends to go to our website, independent.org, and see for yourself. We've got some serious resources for you there that you won't find elsewhere. Uh, before signing off then, uh, any final thought from you, Bill Evers? Well, I'm disappointed that India's prime minister rolled back pro-market reforms in the yes. farming sector. And I'm mm -hmm. hopeful that Chile's election results, where uh, a somewhat libertarian candidate came in third, might mean that a left-wing socialist doesn't come to the presidency of Chile when they have their next round of voting. That's right. Exactly. That'd be a good thing. Any yeah. final word from you, David Thoreau? Uh, well, of course, this climate issue continues on and the measures in the current uh, gigantic bills the Democrats are pushing are disturbing, to say the least. Uh, hopefully the Republicans will get their act together and stop this current bill. Uh, but we will see. Uh, their, their track record has not been a good one. Uh, speaking of which, if you want more background in-depth knowledge on the subject of climate, highly recommend our own book, Hot Talk Cold Science, third edition, recently published. Um, it is a non-hysterical, non-paranoid, science-based review, which argues against climate alarmism. So uh, again, you'll find Hot Talk Cold Science on Amazon on our own website, independent.org. Uh, and thank you, uh, David. Thank you, Bill, for talking with us today and with all of our friends. We invite everybody to come and join us in 14 days, uh, two weeks from now, uh, where we bring you another episode of Independent Outlook. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.